0: Welcome to Cruxcast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Ben Hurt, he's an eco modernist. Now, what, is, what is that, you may ask? Well, he's looking at how we as society and governments can deliver smart energy mixes. So some of the topics we discuss, obviously, zero carbon options with regards to renewables, how, how uh, nuclear fits into the mix, and the use of small modular reactors, something that he is studying at length at the moment. We look and, uh, at some of the markets, talk about some of the players, how they're influencing and changing the narrative going forward. An absolutely fascinating conversation. Do enjoy the podcast. Ben, how are you doing, sir?
1: I am really, really well here this evening, Matt. It is so good to be on the show.
0: Well, like, thanks for joining us on a Friday night in Australia. Yeah, I'm sure you'd rather have a, a cold one in your hand and reading a good book, I. I would have thought. Um, have a few good books on
1: the go. Good um, man. We'll get to there later in the evening. <laughs>
0: um, well, look Ben, you, we, we've been really keen to speak to you, and um, we've, we've been you know, trying for a while to kind of you know, find a time which kind of suited us both. Um, so do, thank you, one, thank you very much for agreeing to come on the show. Um, and two, I'm excited for this because you're going to talk to us about um, smart energy uses. Okay, so that's the kind of broad theme of this conversation, and we're also excitingly going to get into uh, a little bit more detail about SMRs, which is a topic that I think our viewers have been hearing a lot from us recently. Um, but for, I need to, I need you to describe get, maybe give people a little bit of background about yourself because you describe yourself as an eco modernist. So let's maybe try and uh, give people a sense of you know what you've been doing over the past few years and what's an eco modernist?
1: Yeah, look, I'd be delighted. I mean, eco modernist it's it's a um it's a place I have arrived at probably in the last few years, at the end of a fairly long journey. So I, I would have described myself uh, for a very long time as an environmentalist, and uh, you know that probably that came about. Uh, I used to work in healthcare, so my undergraduate uh, studies were, were in occupational therapy, and I worked in hospitals for some time. Um, and then, just in the course of reading a couple of influential books, got very, very connected with environmental sustainability and and very, very passionate about those. Challenges and went through a substantial sort of professional redirect. I took a masters in sustainability at, at Monash University in my mid to late twenties. Um, found myself getting far better marks than I ever got in, in undergrad, so I figured I was on a on a winning uh, choice. Uh, and really ate up the content, you know. Really, really enjoyed thinking about the economics, the the legal, the technological, and engineering challenges of, of environmental sustainability, which was tremendous. And 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 lots and lots of fun. And from there, I was able to to begin consulting with some major consulting houses in climate change and sustainability related matters. A lot of stakeholder consultation and risk communication also. And this was uh, all good to a point. Um, and that point probably came when I had been doing climate change related work for quite a long time and long enough to have done some quite large projects in climate change adaptation. Um, you know, trying to think about how cities and, and uh, settlements might adapt to the change that's coming down the pipeline, uh, as well as some work in uh, the mitigation space. So how can we uh, reduce the emissions to, to you know, make that adaptation challenge more tractable? And unfortunately, what I was experiencing was a serious mismatch between the two. I was seeing a, uh, a very large and, and significant problem here. Uh, and I was seeing a portfolio of solutions in, in the form of you know renewable energy um, carbon neutrality processes, um, revegetation and the and energy efficiency which which while laudable were just outgunned were just just thoroughly outgunned uh, and that was kind of depressing. To be to be to be brutally honest it was actually very very difficult to to have gone on quite a journey got to myself to a position and then suddenly started thinking oh, i'm not really sure if we can do this and um doing work in particular on the on the emissions that would would be associated with um just one desalination plant in australia you know one of the very earliest desalination plants right in the height of drought around about 2007. Um, and the emissions that would come from that, because it was connected to the Victorian grid, which was running on lignite, you know, was just so high, it started to get me acquainted with, with the scale of what we're talking about here. Um, you know, one thing led to another and, and when I returned to my home city where I live now, Adelaide, I, for, for various circumstances, I began my own consultancy and I felt like I had the intellectual freedom to um, go back to something I'd rejected a long time ago, which was nuclear power and nuclear technology. So as an environmentalist, um, it, it felt like something of a package deal that you, you sign up to several positions and points of view, and one of them is that you reject nuclear technology. Uh, so that's fine. I was signed up. Not a problem. Um, so I was anti-nuclear, um, not without having ever thought too terribly hard about it. Uh, and I spent a couple of years thinking really, really hard about it and um, basically found that I had cornered myself and I had to change my mind on that. On that position, and with you know, with the zeal of the converted, I decided I should um, probably start talking about that. Um, so I did, and I fundamentally haven't stopped. Um, that's been an exciting journey. A lot of blogging, a lot of popular articles. The beginning of making some some independent contributions, like a process we we did called Zero Carbon Options, to try to bring some new thinking into the space. Uh, met a lot of great people, and and um, that included a, a tap on the shoulder from a guy I was working with, Barry Brook at the University of Adelaide, to say, you know, what about a PhD? How, how about you come and do that? So that became the next step. And so, uh, a couple of years ago, in 2018, I, I um, was awarded that PhD, and I was looking at bringing together. Uh, well, I was looking at first of all establishing the the need for nuclear power in that decarbonisation challenge, and I guess really firming up with certainty that yes that need is there uh, and if it is there what's the right blend of technologies that we might consider and what are the what are the conditions for considering different technologies to achieve uh, a given outcome which we might generally take for granted as energy being um, reliable affordable and also sufficiently clean to really seriously tackle climate change now at the end of all of that you get to something called eco-modernism and you know, what happened along the way is I came into contact with a lot of people who were thinking like I used to be thinking as an environmentalist, but, but fractionally different, you know, just sort of pivoted in, in a slightly different direction. And one of those was this supervisor and and he was one of the co-authors of uh, a document called the Ecomodernist Manifesto. Um, I knew several of the authors of this document. It's a good document. And and when I I read it, it really spoke to me. And what it seems to have happened is that, that a, a breakaway, I guess, of environmentalism has sprung up. And it, it's people who are very, very connected with the need to protect the natural world, very, very attached to a world that has natural beauty in it, clean air, clean water and a clean environment. Unlike the sort of environmentalism that, that uh, I was originally brought up on, it is, it, it, it's avowedly pro-technology Uh, It is a validly pro-innovation. It it has a very strong slant that our best chance of solving these challenges is that we will need to technologically innovate our way to solutions and that states should play a strong role in funding innovation. If there's a good place for for state-based money, it's in that innovation gap. Um, Ecomodernism tends to be uh, quite quite, um, humanist. Uh, quite human loving uh, which really suited me back to my roots having been raised as a, as a Catholic um, and with a strong social justice ethic where environmentalism can have quite a an undercurrent or sometimes quite an overt misanthropy about it uh, eco-modernism really rejects that very solidly it's sort of to say that um, there really can't be a trade-off between achieving these these environmental goals and achieving the goals of of furthering human potential, um, progressing human health uh, and, and well-being and indeed if ever we do try to trade them off, the environment loses um, and so, so we really need to stop doing that. Um, it tends to um, advocate very strongly for intensifying what we do so um, bring our impacts in to smaller areas and th- a lot of that comes down to, to clean plentiful energy because energy is such a great substitute you know if we have enough energy we can substitute for a lot of services that were previously being provided by nature and then leave nature alone so whereas sort of during my masters of sustainability we would think about things like um, pricing ecosystem services you've probably had some idea of this you know let's let's look at the the value of that watershed in terms of providing clean water we'll put a price on it and then people won't mess with it right well, no, <laughs> that's that's not what happens, actually. Um, there's a difference between putting a hypothetical price on something and getting people to pay for it. Um, the other problem is if you can demonstrate greater value from liquidating it, it gets liquidated. Um, and so there's there's more of an idea in eco-modernism that the better pathway is to, to make those areas um, redundant for our material well-being. And then they're free to be there for our spiritual and environmental well-being. Um, so rather than pricing them, we make them valueless um, because we don't need what they're providing anymore for our material well-being. Uh, we used to call that notion priceless. So it's this interesting pivot between mm. no value and priceless. Mm. So that's, you know, that's, that's sort of that, that, that difference. And you know, the, the, the more I've gone down this route, the more I've realized that's what I am. Um, And it's actually a different thing to an environmentalist. It's an eco-modernist.
0: Well, let's talk about that for a bit, because I know we're here to talk about, you know, different energy mixes, and I do want to talk about SMR and stuff, but I I, I quite like that, because when what what you've done, how you've evolved, because when people talk about environmentalists, you know, from the 60s onward, it seemed a very um, fundamentalist type approach, you know, there was unthinkingly moving a certain direction and almost alienating, in a, in a way, the rest of society who didn't like the, the extremist-ness of, of, of thought or behaviour. I, I think there's a, there's a little bit of that, for sure. Um, and I like the evolving nature of the, of the conversation over the, I think, the past decade. You know, people like Michael Schellenberg, who who's you know, switched, segued. Um you know to be a pro nuclear advocate in in that time and possibly even anti renewable uh, to a degree so um it's it 's kind of fair to say the conversation the narrative has changed and evolved but what was the what was the moment for you? I know you sort of touched upon it there, but what what was the thought in that moment which said to you something's got to change because you know the definition of insanity is repeating the same thing over and over with the same results. So where was that?
1: Oh yeah, I gosh, you know there were there were a number of them that that worked on different bits of my my psyche <laughs> you could say. Uh one was uh what, for example was trying to to implement a carbon neutrality project uh on a um fairly modest piece of infrastructure in in Melbourne. And when I could see the the administrative and data verification burden that was actually reasonably required to make that claim, that sort of helped me look at that and go, that's not going to scale up. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's too much work for too little difference. Um, t- to rely on stuff like that. that that's not going to scale up. Um, another very big one was being in charge of the spreadsheet for the greenhouse gas emissions of this desalination plant and, and looking at it and then going okay and turning over and looking at the scale of, uh, of the wind or the solar that we were looking at that time and, and just feeling quite gobsmacked by the, by the scale of the difference there. You know, one single new piece of infrastructure was going to require so much new renewable energy just to break even (laughs) on an emissions basis and when i was looking at the adaptation realizing oh we're gonna need to desalinate in australia you know it's coming so so it can't it can't work that way and then there was a very interesting moment which was a behavior more of a behavioral moment actually where um I was probably pretty close to, to changing my position on nuclear power, which is which is probably the core of my eco-modernism was centred on, on the nuclear power issue. And I went to a debate at Adelaide University with Barry Brook, who went, who went on to become my, my PhD supervisor and friend and mentor, uh, a gentleman called Tom, Tom Blees from the United States who wrote a tremendous book called Prescription for the Planet, uh, and a couple of, uh, on the opposing side, an academic called Mark DeSendorf and an activist called David Noonan. And I'd been following Barry's uh, work very carefully and I'd been following um, the climate science work very carefully and I'd, and I'd become very familiar with the um, rhetorical zigzags that, that um, people who wish to, to criticize climate science would take. So I'd become quite a good detective on going, no, hang on, you're not playing straight with this here. Um, and then I saw the anti-nuclear activist replicate that exact behavior um, in the forum. Uh, I saw a a professor which was Barry and a a very humble very nice guy Tom playing a very straight bat with an audience and then I saw a a, a clear cherry pick uh, piece of behavior over here and uh, it was actually it was a moment of identity where I went I can't identify I don't want to identify with that anymore Um, if that's what that is I don't like it and I reject it and so you know it's, it's, it's why I'm Always very keen for people who are um, passionate about the same causes that I am. I ask them to always check their behaviour very, very carefully, because if we are interested in the task of of, um, of persuasion, we must be appealing. You know, we must look like people that you would want to stand next to. Um, so our conduct is is critical. And um, seeing that example writ large, that really got me quite over the line. And then actually the um. The other thing was that night was learning about the integral fast reactor and fast breeder reactors and realizing that we could recycle all the nuclear waste. So I thought maybe I might sort of step over the line and change my mind. Instead, I sort of triple jumped over it. You know, just went, oh my God, I'm so pro-nuclear now um, because you know I didn't realize this was available. Um, and so that just was a quite a you know quite a, quite a pivot on the mindset. But you know, the people often ask for the lightning bolt moment. It's not quite like that, but there are a number of memorable moments along the way, which is something else that's worth keeping in mind. If we're dealing with anybody, give them time. It's going to be an accumulation of experiences and knowledges that leads to, to, a, to a change of position, not a magic moment.
0: So you're pro-nuclear. You, you understand, I mean, we, we will promise to talk about SMRs um, for sure, and fast breeders and knee gen, et cetera. You know, I'm, I'm excited to talk about that. One. But, You are also an advocate for smart energy mixes. So, and obviously, different geographies, different countries will have their their own drivers. There, you know, Australia, Spain, lots of solar. I suspect off the coast of uh, Scotland, will you know, lots of wind. Um, You know, so there's lots of different ideas and solutions out there. Where you know, I referenced Mike Schellenberg, Mike Schellenberg, a second ago. Being pointing out the the fallacy of renewable being entirely carbon free, because you have to dig stuff out of the ground to produce it, and you transport it around the world, and it, you know, it doesn't. It, it, it has the um, emotional connection with people believing that it's, you know, it's all it's it's all uh, all good stuff. But the reality is somewhat different. That's not to say we shouldn't do it. So, you've obviously had a, had a good look and a rummage around renewables as, as, as part of your learning. Um, what, you know, what, what would you say to people in terms of you know, how the world should be looking at this? Because I think you've to some clues there. This, this can't be bottom up. This has to be top down.
1: It isn't going to come from decentralised small-bore solutions at a household level, um, ultimately. Some of that can aggregate up and make an impressive contribution. Um, but it's far from what we require ultimately to get to where we're going. Um, I think you started with something that I would, that I would probably you know, want to lead towards, which is that because of the, of the differences in um, resource availability, you know, geography, uh, and need, there are always, always going to be different energy sources that are going to have different merits in different places. And it is appropriate, legitimate, and just smart have all of those options on the table at all times and the challenge is to try to balance the need for um, optimization which the optimal mix of solutions keeps changing because the technology keeps changing the costs keep changing and the needs keep changing uh, with enough prescription and certainty to actually get things going on a decent amount of time frame right so What I'm generally interested in looking for is where are, what is the no regrets, relatively ironclad level of prescription that we can have around certain technology pathways in different jurisdictions and in different places. So when uh, I look at Australia, at the moment we operate a lot of coal. So for a relatively small nation, we've got like 25 gigawatts of of coal online. And um, it's gonna go, it has to, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you look at it, um, it's not going to be replaced. It's going to be retired. Um, is it going to be retired with 25 gigawatts of things that behave in exactly the same way in the system? Maybe not. Maybe, but maybe not. Um, but on the basis of my modeling, should we build at least 10? Yes. <laughs> yes, we should. So I'm really confident that that even if you take a country like Australia, which has an excellent solar resource and an excellent wind resource and a lot of coastline, there's a if your goal is a deeply decarbonized economy and a deeply decarbonized energy grid, there's, there's a virtually ironclad case for at least 10,000 megawatts of nuclear power in that mix. And that's more than enough to get you started and plan and keep learning and see for the next cycle. Now, in when I talk about smart energy mixes in my city, um, a lot of houses here now have rooftop solar PV. Now, Adelaide's a sunny place, a very Mediterranean climate. Uh, makes a lot of power, and that's cheap electricity now. That's good. One of the dumb things we did is that we used that solar PV to try to make high volumes of electricity. So we faced them all north to get the largest quantity of power out of them that we we could during the day. I keep stressing to to everyone, we should have faced them west because that's when the power peaks. We should have used the solar PV to create high-value electricity. So the difference in the value of electricity on a stinking hot day in Adelaide, when everyone's running their air conditioner between midday and between 5 and 6 p.m. And by the way, it keeps getting hotter until about 4 or 5 p.m. here uh, on those days. And then everyone's come home, all the offices are still running, all the houses come home and flick on their air conditioners. The difference in the wholesale price in our market can be thousands of dollars. The strain on the network is sky high at those times. And if all of those units were facing west, that's when they'd be maxing out their production. And that actually be an aid to the network and an aid to the grid. They'd be lowering the demand on the distribution network, lowering the demand on the transmission network, lowering the demand on the generators because they're producing power when we need it most. Whereas when they are north facing, they peak in midday and they're seriously waning by the time that, that 4 to 6 p.m. period comes around. That's just what I mean by smart that's not pro or anti-solar, that's just looking at how does the network work and what's the best use of that technology in that need. Whereas what we're creating now is the same thing they have in California is this duck curve effect. As as that is waning and the demand is is peaking, you've got to ramp a long way, hard way to go up there. And so unfortunately, um, what we're starting to see and what I've seen in jurisdictions like uh, Australia and particularly South Australia where I live, um, Germany, California, is that um, those low-cost, uh, low-energy-cost renewables like wind and solar, are very attractive in the early stages of an energy transition because they are able to append to a uh, power distribution system and power creation distribution system that was built with a lot of redundancy as part of the design, and so they 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 profit off that redundancy because there's there's enough of everything still there. It gets harder in a non-linear way <laughs> as that penetration goes up. Uh, and that's where we must be smart about what we're doing. What's the right amount of everything used in the right way? The beautiful thing about nuclear technology is that it can work pretty much everywhere and it isn't weather dependent. Um, so there's probably a role for it. In Australia, is there going to be a role for onshore wind, offshore wind and solar in getting us to that position? Yeah, I'm virtually I'm virtually certain that there is. And certainly the, the degree to which they brought their costs down over the last couple of decades has, has pulled that in really strongly. So I'm not as hard on that position as, say, Mike is, and, you know, he and I see certain things very, very similarly, and we see this one a little differently. But he may yet be right. Um, but you know, on the other hand, on it from a decarbonization perspective, nuclear probably at the moment isn't, isn't on the footing to actually go and deliver all of that right now. So, we're going to be getting more wind and solar, I'd like to see us using it in a smart way. Um, and to work out what that optimal mix is, if it's going to be more nuclear, it's going to need to be better nuclear, it's going to need to be cheaper nuclear, it's going to be, need to be nuclear that it's, that's easier to deliver. Um, it's going to need to be nuclear that, that just um, makes it so much more of a no-brainer for investors, communities, governments to, to, to bring onto their, onto their system. And, and that's, part of, that's part of the challenge. Um, so yeah, I think wind and solar is going to have a big role everywhere. When you look at uh, Kenya, you know they've done quite well with their um, hydrogeothermal resources. Why wouldn't they? I mean, they they have it. They have quite a good shallow um, hydrological geothermal resource. That, that's that's a, that's a that's a really smart way for Kenya to make power. So bring it in, bring it into the mix. Um, so I just, I'd like people to do their best to set their ideology aside. Um, remain open to the evidence, look forward just a a medium term way into the future and decide, well, what are our best steps with the reasonable time horizon that we've got? Understanding that we need to take some action and we're not going to be able to optimize perfectly, but what can we do that's relatively smart and no regrets and have gateways and keep reappraising as we move forward? Under that sort of a framework, I see a strong future for all of those technologies. Ultimately, end game. If you make good enough nuclear, it can pretty much do everything. But we're not there yet.
0: Quite a few topics there, and I hope we can come back to them another day. Um, sure. You know, when we talked about bottom up versus top down, and you know, governments needing to you know open up to the possibility or the possibilities. Um, I like the, and, but they're also going to have to fund some of this. And some of it's going to be private, and it needs to be easy for private money to recoup their investments. There's existing yeah. infrastructures which either need to be replaced, upgraded. Um, there's energy storage, VRFB. Is that going to come through in time to be able to, um, you know, add, 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 in an economic way for whether it be for industry or for houses? Um, there's like I say, lots and lots of topics there, and I'm going to have to go back over this interview and just write these down because yeah, we yeah, should sure. talk about those. But we're here today to talk about something which you know a lot about, and we talk, which is nuclear and SMR, small modular reactors. I know you've been looking right. specifically at the US, UK and Canada. Um, I think there's a couple of other quite big players in the market who have, I, I think, taken the market. Um, Russia with their own designs and China has you know, got, got, its, got its own designs too. But yeah. I'm interested in that ecosystem going forward. You're going to talk to us about some of the specific um, delivery mechanisms. Um, but right. in the background, you've also got this former powerhouse in the shape of the US, Westinghouse, I think of, of old. Um, who are trying to step back in and be a player again. So why don't you tell us sir, where you've been working, what you've been looking at with SMRs?
1: Right. Yeah, look, absolute pleasure. I mean, so it, w- it was probably an ending point in my thesis um, uh, was, was to start thinking about some of the more advanced nuclear technologies. Uh, in particular, there I was looking at some of the fast breeder reactors, which are small, but th- that's not necessarily the, the, the key characteristic there. Um, again, it goes back to context and, and which 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 economic context you're looking at. So, there are a lot of middle-income, fast-growing nations where very large nuclear is still got a really clear role, right? If it's fast-growing economies, fast-growing energy demand, um, strong sort of state-driven markets, um, standing up uh, projects of, of many gigawatts of large plants built side by side is still going to be an eminently achievable and probably very cost-effective thing. And so to the extent that um, uh, KEPCO has done that in the United Arab Emirates, we're going to see that in Turkey, we're going to see that in Egypt, we're going to keep seeing that in China, there is still a role for those big reactors and there is so much energy out there in the world that needs to be made cleanly, they're not going away. So, Having said that, um, then you come to markets like mine, where um, A, we're a very long and skinny grid, connecting 1,000 megawatts, 1,200 or 1,600 megawatts onto, the, onto our grid is, is hard, hard work. And it's very hard work in, in the developing world as well. Um, getting the, uh, the political will to stand behind maybe a decade's worth of 10 or $20 billion worth of project all at once not actually that easy anymore. Um, we used to do stuff called nation building in Australia. I wasn't born at that point. Um, okay, so now we're at the point where we're pretty mature and it's more about mm, replacement and rejuvenation, like you've said. Um, so, can that be nuclear? So yeah, it, it, it can, but it would need to be a different type of nuclear and that's in, in small modular reactors. So, yeah, you know, I've been telling a bit of a story lately in some discussion papers and, and some research. I'm currently in the, in the midst of delivering some seminars to a, to a mining major here in Australia who wants to know and understand more about these sorts of reactors. The nuclear began small, so um, only 3 years after it first made electricity and light bulbs, there was sort of 25-megawatt power plants in submarines and so we've always had small nuclear reactors and they've been been for propulsion on the ocean and there's about 200 small reactors charging around in submarines, icebreakers and, and, and aircraft carriers. So, we've known how to do it. And then the first commercial sort of prototype plants were about 250 megawatt units. And then for the sake of economy of scale, they got, they got a lot bigger, a lot more quickly, up to about 1000. And then, sort of heading to the biggest in the world is the 1600 megawatts in a single unit, which is the, the European Pressurised Reactor being built in the UK and a few other parts, places around the world. So the the law of the land there was was economies of scale. Um, that can work provided you you build, you keep building, you build lots, you maintain a trained workforce, um, and you get extremely, extremely good at it. If you get if you forget how to do it, if you lose your skill, if you lose your knowledge um you get a situation that happened in the united states 20 to 25 years worth of build hiatus trying to start again um wasn't that radical to design um and ran into into a lot of difficulties um what if you go back to that smaller size what happens if you go all the way back to to where it began with all of the experience of 50 years and the massive step-ups in our ability to consider and use computational tools to solve different challenges, what would you do if you had a clean drawing board with a small reactor? So what we're seeing now from companies like uh, NewScale Power, General Electric Hitachi um, and Rolls-Royce, those three in particular, they're taking mature, very well-known fuel cycles. So these three players are not innovating the, the, the fundamental fuel cycle that's in the reactor. It's still pressurized water reactor or boiling water reactor. But by shrinking it right back down, they achieve a couple of things. First of all, it moves the nuclear reactor, or at least the nuclear part of the nuclear power plant, away from a construction paradigm and towards a manufacturing paradigm, which has served uh, wind power and solar power so well, is to have a manufacturing-based paradigm where the product arrives and is installed. So you can have these reactor units assembled fully in a factory, quality controlled, shipped to site and installed in a a really standardised way. It also turns out that when you shrink them down, you can overcome that economy of scale because you actually find yourself, little by little, actually eliminating, altogether eliminating several systems that were required to achieve certain outcomes in such a large core size. So you can achieve passively what used to be achieved actively. Things that required pumps, valves, motors uh, can now be done with uh, convection. They can now just be done using natural forces, and so suddenly things are starting to get designed out. And so you then then you need less structural concrete, less steel, uh, fewer systems, and it's it's you're starting to end up with a lean mean kind of design. And then what you, you're also only asking for a billion US dollars, um, which opens up the number of customers you can have for that product a lot compared to asking for 6 to $10 billion, um, and you can ask for a $1 billion at a time. And if it works, you can do the next one. And so that's where that small modular reactor um, paradigm, it psychs me a lot is it makes it, it's going to, I believe it's going to make it commercially so much more achievable. So I've been monitoring this for probably 10 years and it's accelerated greatly in the last two to three. And even the last six months, I've seen another real step up. And not only is the technology improving, but the context around the technology is changing greatly. So you've mentioned the United States and the the loss of their lead. Um, it hasn't gone unnoticed. And the USA is, is really um, quite openly um, backing small modular reactor technologies as a way of regaining that strategically. So we now see things like the Advanced Reactor Development Program to help that first build, just close that gap between the innovation and the commerciality. That's the exact right spot for to state money to, to reside. Things like the versatile fast test reactor. So more and more commercial companies can get their materials testing done for their, for their advanced reactor designs. Opening up the US Development Bank to, for the first time ever, actually fund zero carbon nuclear in developing nations on the back of now having what they feel is a suitable nuclear product to do so. And let's be honest, in so doing, regain strategic influence and geopolitical influence that they have ceded. Um, So, this context is changing rapidly. The Government of Canada has a strong strategic uh, roadmap for small modular reactor technologies. The UK um, consortium led by Rolls-Royce. Is looking at developing uh, 25 small modular reactors in the UK and and returning to that in, in industrialization of making and providing your own energy, where the UK has become increasingly reliant on Chinese money and Chinese knowledge uh, in in its energy development. So, the context around it is just getting friendlier and friendlier. The regulatory agencies are realising that, in particularly in the United States, that they were running a very prescriptive model built around large light water reactors and it was unfriendly to innovation and this change started a few years ago and now we're really seeing the fruits of it so uh, if we take for example my friends at at, uh, oklo um, who are designing something called the aurora powerhouse um, they have achieved a a dramatic reduction in what they think is going to be the regulatory time by taking a a different pathway through the regulatory agencies the new scale power station has provided an evidence base that their, their passive safety is so great that there is no requirement for an emergency planning zone. They brought a case of evidence to say our emergency planning zone should be the site boundary. And the NRC has currently had its, its in consultation right now. That is a proposed rule change, that these facilities do not require an emergency planning zone. That's a dramatic de-risking of, of an energy project that can bring it right into the heart of an industrial precinct. Um, that can raise confidence about about having the, these facilities in, in more places. So, we're seeing a regulatory response that I, I think had to come. I mean, part of what's going on here is that we've had 30 years of failure in climate policy. You know, the IPCC effort is about 30 years old now, and it has not worked, right? Well, whatever we've been trying has failed. So, back when the IPCC was born, about 80% of the world's energy was fossil based. 30 years later, about 80% of the world's energy is fossil based. We've grown the clean energy sources, but the overall energy consumption has gone along with it. And in emissions terms, things have just gotten dramatically worse. And something we haven't been doing a lot of in that 30 years is is innovating and building a whole lot more nuclear power. It's been a real gap. So we're seeing that emerge really strongly now. And then we have innovators like terrestrial energy from Canada with the molten salt reactor. Um, That takes it a step further. That device is atmospherically pressured. It uh, doesn't require any structural steel to contain it. There's no energy trying to get out. You can't have a meltdown when the fuel is already molten. So the fuel and the coolant is the exact same thing circulating passively in this this device. It has a molten salt loop that can direct heat up to five kilometres away from the plant in molten salt. So it is effectively a heat plant and they're very open about this. If you want to generate electricity with it, generate electricity with it, because they're sending out good six to 700 degrees centigrade heat, zero carbon. No other technology can do that. So if you want to make hydrogen with that, if you want to desalinate water with that, if you want to do beneficiation in minerals with that, uh, if you want to uh, make ammonia or other chemicals with that, or if you want to make electricity with that, or some combination of the both with cogeneration, you can and so these innovations are i think going to lead to well this goal that we ultimately need which is someone who is quite let's 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 imagine an ambivalent utility investor who 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 is ambivalent about climate change but his j- job is is the financial returns clearly chooses the clean energy technology that's when you've won and that's what i feel particularly in um The more mature industrialized markets, where we're already relatively saturated in energy, but we must transition ourselves off and onto something something new, I think that that's where small modular reactors are going to have a crucial role to play.
0: I think, well, I mean, fascinating romp through the world of small, uh, you know, modular reactors there, and interesting to hear about the different types of innovation uh, coming through as well. Again, many many topics which we can probably come back to on, on on another call because. Um, each one deserves its own spot in the the sunlight. Um, You talked about the way that these things get funded. And I always wonder, certainly when we've been having conversations around nuclear, the way that governments allow funding to happen. Either the government's got to stump up with the money, in which case you need kind of bipartisan agreement across the board. And in some countries that's a lot easier uh, said than done. Um, because these are not small numbers. I think I agree with you, the SMRs makes it cheaper. But at the end of the day, the entire infrastructure, wherever the individual assets are, is still in the tens of billions of dollars. Um, So these are big decisions which need to be made. And I, you know, again, I come back to the US uh, where, you know, these assets are owned by utilities and it's in private hands. Um, governments can say lay the foundations in terms of funding. I think you referred there to funding some of these innovations uh, coming coming through, um, and they can talk the language of wanting to be innovators in the market and for the sole purpose of control, or at least the ability to exert some level of control geopolitically, um, because. Energy is a is a must have, rather than a, you know mm. a, you know something more more, more frivolous. Um, but it's a great bargaining tool. Are you are you seeing because uh, you have looked at the U.S. and Canada? Are you seeing those types of conversations being driven politically or out of an actual need? To sort out the basic energy infrastructures?
1: Yeah, so both. I mean in the in the markets themselves, particularly in Australia where we're not yet allowed to use it, but we're, we're well aware of the problems we're beginning to face, uh, as well as in in the United States and Canada, it's still going to be predominantly private um, money through utilities. but government appears to be understanding that they've got to establish the conditions and the preconditions and do that bridging. To help um, steer those crucial industries towards the future that, as government, they feel they should be stewarding toward, which fundamentally is is a clean energy future. Um, the, diff- the it seems very difficult for country uh, for countries that have liberalised their energy economies to contemplate rolling that back to a more state on state owned model. Um, I, you know, I haven't seen anybody really put that up as, as anything more than a thought balloon right um, it did there doesn't seem to be any appetite towards that at all um but stepping in at those crucial moments where uh, maybe an innovator has has you know might be 10 maybe they've they've, they've got through their first 10 years and they, they've innovated to a substantial point but then they're facing a real valley of death but they're, they're sitting on a great product um that is a, that is an excellent place for government when you look more internationally in, and into other markets, um, it's different. Yeah, energy is um, energy is the master enabler. You know, it's it is um, it is not optional. Energy and water and food are, are not optional, and energy in particular, it, it is about. It's not the end in itself. You know, it, it's what the people in the economy do with it. But if you haven't got it, you can't do much of anything at all. And so, when you look at the moral imperative, and the environmental imperative, and the economic imperative to see um, the reduction of poverty, and which it is, comes through the economic uh, development process, and you understand <laughs> that um, their emissions will count for just as much as ours, um, so if you can see if you have one eye and understand that well, you know, they can't. You know, if this becomes a coal-driven process, we are in ten kinds of trouble. Um, that's where making that fundamentally, fundamental enabler affordable is a is a role for, for funding. Now, the fact that development banks have rejected nuclear for so long is is a travesty. I mean, even recently in the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank's Energy strategy for Asia locked out nuclear developments while funding you know best in-class technology coal. Um, how can we possibly get a climate change outcome under those types of conditions? So now in particular with with nuclear power, a lot of it really just comes down to lowering the cost of capital. Um, they can still they still can pay for it. But the price of money is hugely influential in nuclear because even with small nuclear, you're right, it's still a large sum of money, um, and it's a really long-lived asset. So you, you're going to get value out of it for sixty or maybe eighty years. But if yeah, if you've got a discount rate that's any more than than five percent, you know, anything beyond thirty years, any value is is invisible in in the numbers that you're looking at for the energy project. So if you've got discount rates of five, seven, nine, ten percent, twenty-five year economic lives, well, that's fine for a wind project or a solar project because guess what? Their technical life is probably twenty-five years. The technical life and the economic life are a pretty good match. When you get to the end of it, they're, they're clapped out and they they need to be replaced. They they've copped a, you know, a lot of. Uh, impact from their exposure over time. Solar PV begins to degrade from day one a little bit at a time, year on year. Wind turbines have to put up with a lot of stress and strain. They actually are on the way out at that point. A nuclear power station is just getting started. So if you've got a, you know, all sorts of um, countries where their greatest asset would be a pool of, of young, intelligent people who want to work and, and want to be out of poverty, they must have energy so that there can be something to be done with that. It must be clean. And the journey there is, is, is a journey of many generations. So simply providing low-cost money is sometimes, you know, certainly when you, you fiddle around with the, uh, the levelized cost of electricity, changing that discount rate is hugely influential. So it still needs to be bought and paid for, but unless we lower the cost of money, we're cheapening the future. So, if we're looking at situations where they are matters of intergenerational equity and poverty, and then they are matters of intergenerational equity in terms of dealing with climate change, that has to be acknowledged in the way we fund. And that for me is another, um, in my opinion, should be a relatively low controversy space for government, is that if you have an asset, now I don't care whether it is a nuclear asset or it's another asset, but if you have an asset, that can provide clean energy reliably for potentially the next 80 years, there should be cheap money to to enable that because it's going to have enormous societal value for that period of time. And uh, that is something I am now finally, thankfully, beginning to see. Now China and Russia have been doing it for many years now.
0: And they're signing
1: up a lot of countries. Well, that's
0: a really big uh, conclusion to this conversation, because we've got to find a way to make uh, nuclear energy afford- affordable in comparison to all the other alternatives. It's got to yes. be a, a yes. non-discussion. And unfortunately at the moment, yes. I think with, I'm looking back to the US here specifically, and possibly in France to a degree. Um, and, and definitely Germany, where the reactors are of a certain age, there's got to be more investment. And you know, can governments help by, say, making that money uh, available? Uh, can they make it available cheaply mm. um, to mm. reinvigorate uh, those those sectors? I think the answer is yes. It doesn't necessarily need to come through actual cash. It could be in 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 the way of you know tax breaks or. Or, or similar, right? So, so there's lots of ways right. they can play with money on the spreadsheet. But the point is, it's yep. got to be a level playing field and we've got to remove this language which I think we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, which is um, it's, uh, you know, this kind of competitive environment for energy. It's It should be right. all of the above equal.
1: Well, look, I mean, I have to caveat that, right? So my position is. a, uh, uh, as an eco-modernist and somebody and started this whole journey on, on climate change is, no, I, I want it weighted against the fossil fuels. I do, right? <laughs> so I want, right? So, or, or should I say, against the unabated fossil fuels. If you can put together a carbon capture and storage project, I'm all for it. Right, and and that should should be on on the on the drawing board. But no, ideally, I want those policies weighted against the unabated fossil fuels. Ideally, in the end, I'd like a I'd I'd like to not need a policy environment where you get to the point where you simply wouldn't bother to dig up, and you've got a better thing now. You're, yes, of course. That's what I would ultimately. Thank want. you
0: for clarifying it's exactly what yep. I meant, but I didn't say. So it's,
1: it's a minefield of a
0: discussion, man. It's a, it, well, it's a brilliant <laughs> discussion. It's fascinating. I've loved every second of this. There's more to be talked about, which is great news. Um, sure. Ben, thanks very much for your time today. You're um, part of the Fraser Nash Group. That's your company, but you've also yeah, Fraser
1: Nash Consultancy. That Fraser
0: right. Nash Consultancy. So people can look that up. So I'm sure there's some useful information there as well. Um, but you're also um, part of the Bright New World. Um, uh, well, you got. I think. What is the URL actually for the website? People can go there.
1: Brightnewworld.org. So there's no .au for Australia. It's just Brightnewworld.org. One word. It's a. It's an eco-modernist non-governmental organisation. You know, we. Um, we established it because we wanted to offer people a home if they felt like they didn't have an NGO that they could support because. They also felt the drift of, of the values of, of Greenpeace or Friends of the Earth, but they, they were still passionate about climate change, conservation, recycling, things that we're very into at Bright New World. But they needed a value set that they could subscribe to that was that was more pro-human, pro-technology and you know, avowedly optimistic in, in every stage. That's what we started Bright New World for. So please check us out. We we blog regularly, and um, we are particularly active on submission writing here in our Australian environment to achieve change. And we've actually had some real wins. I'm really proud of the organisation and its community. So please come and check us out.
0: Do do that for intelligent data to have an intelligent debate to put, for people to make their own minds up, not just follow the herd. Definitely have a look at that, Ben. We can follow thank this so- herd. <laughs> <laughs> There's oh no my one. goodness. Okay. You've used that before. Are you You've used that one? before. No, that just came to me, I promise. Okay, well, that's quite quick worded. Okay, you can, if you don't, only follow the Ben herd, not the regular herd. Brilliant. Ben, thanks so much for your time. I'm I really genuinely looking forward to speaking to you again. He's so um, passionate about this topic. Some great data uh, points there for us to go away and maybe research. Uh, and uh, we'll speak to you again soon.
1: If anybody needs more on small modular reactors, look me up. We're 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 deep in it these days, and there's a lot of exciting things to talk about there. Love to speak again, Matt. Let's do it again.
0: Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, CruxInvestor.com, and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.